Wow, video introduction. It's a VIP treatment. Well, good morning. Uh, like, like Tim said, my, my name is Josh Loomis. Um, we're members here for three years. Um, and then six months ago, uh, we moved to, to Champaign. Uh, Champaign-Urbana, two and a half hours south, uh, in, in the efforts to work towards planting a church. Um, and I, I was struck by, as I walked in this morning, of how much it felt like home, uh, this, this congregation. And uh, even though we've been, we've been gone for some time, uh, just how stepping back into uh, North Sub is, is such a, a blessing. And so many familiar faces. Well, you, you heard an update uh, at the, the annual meeting of, of some of, of what we've been doing. Uh, but in these last six months, it's been very clear to both of us that the Lord is at work uh, that hearts are being stirred in Champaign-Urbana. Uh, even actually this, this past week, uh, there's the potential of another guy who is, is willing to, to come alongside me and, and partner with me as we uh, plan to, to plant the church, which is an answer to prayers for myself as well as uh, th- this other guy who's, who's been searching for uh, more church involvement. So uh, as we, we work towards planting our own church in hopefully the, the fall of 2025 uh, is kind of the goal. We're, we're partnering with another church now, um, but we'll work towards establishing a core team and then uh, launching a church, uh, which will most likely be called uh, Abide Church, uh, as we live in a, a very transient community, uh, building a church around that idea of remaining in Christ and, and being plugged into the vine no matter where we are. This morning, though, as a, as a church planter, uh, we're going to be going to look at the book of Acts, uh, chapter 4, uh, like, like Mark said, as we look at the types of people that our great God chooses to build his church. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. God, illuminate the word of God so that we might worship you more. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Have you ever felt unqualified for something? Maybe you were tasked with something at work, or perhaps you took on a project around the house where you start it, and then you think to yourself, I'm really not sure that I have the skills or the training to be able to do this. Now, there are many things I feel unqualified for, including almost any house project we do. And to be honest, many times I feel unqualified to be a church planter. But perhaps nowhere did I feel more unqualified than in the Arlington Heights Hospital when I became a father. I had done all sorts of preparation to support Kayla as she gave birth who, by the way, did an amazing job. And I had done mental preparation to to care for Esther as she was welcomed into the world. But I neglected to prepare myself for the giant life change that I myself would undergo. And the hospital setting really threw me off. And in fact, I I got really queasy, and I had a hard time eating the, the full two days we were in the hospital. So my wife, who had just given birth, was able to eat more than I was. And I kept thinking, am I qualified to be a father? 
Now, of course, any parent knows that it doesn't really matter if you feel qualified or not, because the parental responsibilities are immediate. And sure enough, after the two nights we spent, the hospital gave us the all clear. After no questionnaire to see if we would be good parents, no home inspection to see if we had set everything up, they just said, okay, go home. Good luck. Now, by the grace of God, over the last 10 months, as I've been a father, I have felt more and more qualified. And I have realized that, in many ways, the Lord allows us to grow, even when we feel unqualified. But at the beginning, I felt really inadequate. Have you ever felt that way? How about when you're given the opportunity to represent Christ or to share the gospel? Has a question ever come up at work or with your friends where you you had the opportunity to share about Jesus, but you felt unqualified to do so? And maybe you didn't take that opportunity because you thought, well, I, I didn't know enough scripture to effectively share with them. Or maybe you think, well, I, I don't have a good enough relationship to, to press into the, the spiritual. Or maybe you think, hey, if I share poorly, I could push this person farther away from Jesus. So it's better if I just let someone else share with them. Someone else who's more qualified, more learned, Now, if you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. I myself have felt that way. But our passage this morning will show us that we are more qualified than we think. Now, our passage can be broken down into three sections in Acts 4, 1 through 22. We have the arrest in verses 1 through 4. We have the hearing in verses 5 through 12. And then finally, we have the warning of verses 13 through 22. But before we read our first section, I want to establish some of the context of the passage. The book of Acts is about the birth of the church, where the resurrected Jesus commands his disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, in Acts 1.8. In Acts chapter 3, right before our passage, we see Peter and John heal a man who was lame from birth in the temple gate called Beautiful. And when the people see this healing take place, they're astonished, and they rush towards Peter and John. And Peter delivers a sermon when they recognize the beggar. He calls the people in the temple to repent, and to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. We then pick up in chapter 4 and find that Peter and John are arrested. Let's read. Acts 4, 1-4. While they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them 
because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So Peter and John, after having healed this beggar, are creating such a stir that the priests and the Sadducees are made aware of what's going on. The text says that they were annoyed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So the high priest's plan to get rid of Jesus by killing him worked in some sense, but now, just a short while later, his disciples are continuing to teach about Jesus. Now the Sadducees were the group of Jewish leaders that did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So when the text talks of them being annoyed, it draws specific attention to the fact that Peter and John were preaching the resurrection. This goes against what the Sadducees believe. So naturally, they're annoyed by this, and they want to put a stop to Peter and John's teaching. Now it's late in the evening, so they say, hey, we'll, we'll throw them in jail, and then we'll try them the next day. And hopefully, we've managed to prevent, them, prevent too many people from hearing their message. And yet, we're told in verse 4 that many who heard the message believed, so that the number of men grew to about 5,000. The church is beginning to grow to a number that can no longer be ignored. The high priests are aware of this. So they're going to conduct a hearing for Peter and John. Let's continue reading about the hearing. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of, Na- all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. So the next day comes. The high priestly family, the most important people in the Jewish community, call Peter and John and the beggar before them to stand before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, in a trial. Now, the Jewish council is made up of 71 members, 70 elders, 
plus the high priest. And all of these men are experts in the laws of the Old Testament. And they hold immense power in the Jewish community. And they ask a simple question. By what power or in what name did you heal this man? This is a high-pressure question. One that would be the source of nightmares for many of us. To have our actions questioned in the presence of 70 of the smartest men in the community. Regardless of your expertise in a particular situation, standing under the scrutiny of so many experts is scary. Just ask any professor in here if they were nervous to defend their dissertation. That's high pressure. I myself, when I received my ministry license, stood on a, a council of only four men, and I was very nervous, one of which was Pastor Tim. And, and I knew they, they, they loved me, but I was still very nervous for defending what I had written. But when Peter replies, we see no indication of fear or nervousness. The text says that filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter responds, if we are being asked about a good deed done to a disabled man by the means that he was healed, we'll tell you. But in this initial response to the question, it's, it's clear that there's a bit of a challenge from Peter. Are you really bringing us before the full council of the Sanhedrin to ask why we healed this man? I mean, this was an act of kindness. We read in chapter 3 that the people are amazed at what happened to the lame man. No one would question this as stirring up trouble or a harmful act. But despite the questionable accusation, Peter responds. And he responds by saying, if, if that's what you're asking, know this. Not only you, but all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that he has been healed. Whom you, the high priests, crucified. But God raised from the dead. It's through that same power of restoration that this man is healed. And then Peter goes on to quote Psalm 118, which was our call to worship this morning, saying that Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, which has now become the cornerstone. And Peter ends his response by saying, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. So even in the most high-pressure situation you can imagine, Peter is going to take this opportunity to demonstrate that he takes seriously the mandate to be Jesus' witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And he refers to the Psalms, clearly stating that this Jesus that you crucified, he is Israel's promised Messiah. He was rejected by you, but has now become the cornerstone of the church. Hear this, all Israel. You cannot be saved 
by any other means except this Jesus. What you are hoping in, Sanhedrin, is insufficient for salvation. This is a bold statement to the same men who not so long ago orchestrated Jesus' death. And the Sanhedrin understand what such a response means. So they're going to respond with a warning. Let's read chapter 13, verses 13 to 22. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, what should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. So the reaction to Peter and John's initial response is one of astonishment. There's an acknowledgement of the boldness of the response. The Sanhedrin must be thinking, who are these guys that would so willingly claim that the man that we put to death is the power which this lame man has been healed? And they realize that they were uneducated and untrained men. And they took note that they had been with Jesus. Now let's be clear. This does not mean that Peter and John were, were stupid or that they were illiterate. Not at all. Between songs, we, we read from Peter himself, who wrote uh, books of the Bible, as did John. But in that day, to become a rabbi as a Jewish boy was a very intense process, wherein by the time you were 12 years old, you were required to have the whole Old Testament memorized and be able to respond to questions from the rabbis accurately. Hey, where does this appear in the Old Testament? Oh, I, I can respond to that. And if you were unable to do that, you would not be taken on as an apprentice by a rabbi. So when, when they note that these are uneducated, untrained men, it's not that, oh, these men know nothing. It's that Peter and John were unable to pass the test to then become rabbis. And when you didn't pass the test as a 12-year-old Jewish boy, you would typically go on to learn a family business, whatever your, your family was doing. Say, become fishermen. Peter and John. 
So there were very few Jewish men who went on to become rabbis. But of that even select few, the best and the brightest of those were the 71 members who sat on the council. And yet, Peter is quoting Psalm 118 to them. And they say, hey, these guys aren't rabbis. Aren't these guys fishermen? What do they know about the Psalms? But the text tells us that at some time during the discussion, they recognize that these men had been with Jesus. Then it starts to come together. Oh, they're able to heal this man and, and speak so boldly because they were disciples of Jesus. And as they're discussing amongst themselves, they realize that Peter's challenge is, is valid. They see the lame man standing before them who was just healed. They say, well, what can we say? So instead of outright rebuking them for their actions, they, they send them out. And they discuss amongst themselves what should be done. Verse 16 says that the Sanhedrin acknowledges that all of Jerusalem has heard of this sign. We cannot deny it. Now I imagine there was some back and forth about what should be done. But after some time, they decide, okay, we, we can't just deny what has happened, but we have to make sure that, that no one else hears about this. So hey, we'll, we'll threaten them and say, hey, you can no longer teach in the name of Jesus. We acknowledge that you healed this guy this one time, but this, this has got to be the last time. Because that might undermine our authority. Verse 18, they charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And to be charged by the Sanhedrin was a big deal. These were the, the cultural leaders of the day. Now how are these two fishermen going to respond to the ultimate moral, religious, and cultural authority of the society that they lived in. Verse 19 says that they respond to, to the threat with a challenge. Peter and John say, well, what's right in God's eyes? For us to listen to, to you or to listen to God? You decide. Now, it, it seems that Peter and John, they're, they're trying their best to be respectful to the Sanhedrin. They aren't saying, you know, your time is over. This is the age of the church. We no longer need to listen to you. No, they're not saying that. But they are saying, hey, according to the scriptures, the Old Testament that you study and teach and are experts in, God's authority is greater than man's authority. And we were commanded by Jesus to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Verse 20 reports that Peter and John say, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. Now I guarantee this is not the response the Sanhedrin were hoping for. They had ordered the crucifixion of Jesus to stop his teaching. And now his disciples, who are ordinary men, not only seem to be unafraid of them, but are challenging them with the scriptures and telling them to judge what is right. And we're told that they find themselves unable to punish Peter and John 
partially because all the people were giving glory to God over what had been done. Of course, not before they issued more threats to speak about Jesus. Verse 21. But eventually they do release Peter and John. And then we're told that the man who was healed was more than 40 years old. Why is that detail important or included? Well, in chapter 3, verse 2, we're told that this beggar who was healed was lame from birth and that he was laid daily at the gate of the temple called Beautiful. Now, we're not exactly sure when he would have started begging, but it would have been at the very least when he was in his 20s. So for over 20 years, this man is carried to the temple each day to beg for money. So every person in Jerusalem who has been to the temple, nay, every person in Israel who has been to the temple is able to recognize this man as the guy who has been asking for money to survive for the last 20 years. And here he is, walking freely, because of the miracle and the boldness of Peter and John. It's a pretty amazing story, right? But you might be sitting in your seat thinking, yeah, but I'm not Peter. I'm no John. Sure, they were qualified to be witnesses for Jesus, but me? Not so much. I live in the North Shore, where people are highly educated. Some of our Jewish neighbors might even know the Old Testament much better than we do. How could I be a witness to my neighbors, to my coworkers, to my family? How could I be a witness to the ends of the earth? Well, let's take some time to look back through the passage. There are five characteristics of this story that I want to draw attention to in regards to the qualifications of Peter and John. And if you have these five characteristics, sister, you are qualified to be a witness for Jesus. Brother, you are more equipped to share your faith than you think. First qualification. We must understand the gospel. The Sanhedrin are questioning the source by which Peter and John are preaching and healing. In verse 10, Peter responds by saying, It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and God raised from the dead. He is the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. So to be effective witnesses for Jesus, we need to understand that Jesus is the foundation of the church. We don't need to know our Bibles in and out. We need to know the gospel. That Jesus is the incarnate God. He took on flesh. He lived a sinless life. That he was crucified to pay the penalty for our sin. He was buried he was raised from the dead. We also need to be clear that Jesus is the only means 
by which we can be saved. Jesus himself, John 14, 6, says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The power to be healed is not from me, but from Jesus. And the message of the gospel is both all-inclusive and exclusive. The message of the gospel is one that is extended to everyone. Everyone can accept it while also being the only one, the only way in which we can be saved. That's the power of the gospel. Second qualification. We must be with Jesus. The Sanhedrin are astonished that Peter and John were uneducated, untrained, ordinary men. Now take a second and look to your right and look to your left. Now I know, I know North Sub has some people with training in the Bible. If you're sitting next to Dr. Lau, you may have just looked at a man who is trained and educated. But I can tell you that at the very least, the people you just looked at are untrained and uneducated men and women. Now I want to clarify again, uneducated does not mean stupid or illiterate. It simply means that the person has not received years of training about the Bible. Church, these verses should be such an encouragement to us. The global church, which today spans over 2 billion Christians, was led by 12 ordinary men, none of whom passed the standard to become rabbis. The two we read about here, they used to be fishermen until Jesus called them to be his disciples. But the qualification isn't just that we're ordinary. No, the, the Sanhedrin are astonished because they realized that these men had been with Jesus. Now, they walked with Jesus physically, but Jesus himself tells his disciples, it will be better for you when I am no longer physically with you and I send the Holy Spirit to aid you. So when we're with Jesus, when we spend time reading the Bible, fellowshipping with other believers, spend time in prayer, we're qualified to be his witnesses. Third qualification. We must be bold. This is such a prominent theme in the book of Acts, that the believers are filled with courage, with boldness. It is with courage that Peter and John heal the lame beggar. And with boldness that they stand before the Sanhedrin and give an account for their actions. When we walk with Jesus, at some point there will be a moment where we have the opportunity to talk about Jesus. But that takes boldness. I'm sure that all of you can attest. Sharing your faith is nerve-wracking. I still remember one time when I was in high school, I was with two of my friends during track practice, we were walking, and one of my friends I, I was good friends with, and I, I dearly wanted him to come to know Jesus. 
and we were walking, and he said, you know, sometimes I look at the world, and I think there has to be a God. Creation is just too amazing for there not to be a God. And there was a pause in the conversation, and the Holy Spirit within me was screaming, this is your chance, Josh. Tell him about Jesus. But I was scared. I said nothing. Now, by God's grace, he gave me more opportunities to share with that particular friend. And I did have the courage to take them. And let me tell you, church, I have never regretted stepping out in faith and courageously being a witness for Christ. I have regretted times where opportunities presented themselves and I was too scared to do so. And if we look back to verse 8, we see that part of Peter's courage comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. The same spirit of power that resurrected Jesus from the dead that was within Peter and John is within you and me. Fourth qualification. We must point to Jesus' power. The reason that the Sanhedrin are unable to bring themselves to punish Peter and John is because there is a man who has been unable to walk for the last 40 years standing before them, walking around on his own two legs. One of the most effective defenses of the gospel is pointing to men and women who have been changed by the power of Jesus. Now take another second. Look to the person on your right and then to your left. That person has a story of how Jesus has changed them, has healed them. It doesn't have to be a physical healing, although there is great power in those stories. It could be that the gospel finally freed you from believing that you are only loved if you provide something for other people. That's my story. It could be that Jesus gave a family to someone who never felt like they had one. Maybe Jesus healed your marriage or a broken friendship. It could be that Jesus gave you purpose when you felt like you had none. Whatever it might be, when we point to the transformative power of Jesus. People have a hard time dismissing Christianity. When they see the man or woman they have known for the last 40 years, and that person has radically changed for the better, that's a witness to Jesus. You all have a testimony that is worth sharing with your friend, with your coworker, with your family. And I pray that we would have the courage to share those stories. Fifth and final qualification. We must tell others what we have seen and heard. There was immense pressure for Peter and John to listen to the Sanhedrin. They could have been cast out from the community 
They could have been killed, just as Jesus had been, which eventually Peter is killed because he won't stop telling other people what he's seen and heard. And yet, Peter, verse 20, says, We are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. I know you warned us to not speak about Jesus, but we fear God much more than we fear you. In order to be qualified witnesses for Christ, we must tell others what we know. Now, you don't need to be really good at at speaking, at sharing, at telling stories. You don't need to have all this scripture memorized. You simply need to tell people what you've seen and what you've heard, what the Lord is doing in your life, in your church. And if we can find that, that excitement that this, the book of Acts is, is filled with, these stories of, of people bursting at the seams to tell people about Jesus, if we can find that as a church, it's infectious to both other believers as well as non-believers. When you say, hey, I, I just have to tell you about what Jesus is doing in my life. I have to tell you about what we've been learning about in 1 Corinthians, about these healthy relationships. I, I know you're not a believer, but if you're okay with it, I would love to just tell you about what Jesus did and how I've seen a positive change. And then you can share. Regardless of, of how that, that coworker, that family member might react. In Peter and John's situation, they made it clear that not even the, the threat of imprisonment or death will stop them from sharing. Now, thankfully, that probably won't be the case for many of us. But we, we can learn from the brothers and sisters around the world who are under threat of death if they share the gospel and who are still willing to spread the good news of Jesus. The gospel is worth sharing, regardless of how negatively people respond. And I promise you, the more we share, the more excited we are to tell others about Jesus, the easier it becomes. I'd say, hey, that, that was kind of weird if I shared this, that with this person. And then by the fourth time, I thought, well, it's not quite as weird. That actually felt really good to tell someone about what Jesus is doing in my life. And I pray that North Sub would be a church where people are unable to stop speaking about what God is doing in our midst. We set out this morning to answer the question, are you qualified to be a witness for Jesus? We looked at Acts 4. We saw the arrest, the hearing, and then the warning. And from that passage, I pulled out five qualifications for being effective witnesses. All of which are accessible to all of us without any formal training. This is the big idea from this morning. You are 
qualified to be a witness for Christ. God uses broken, ordinary, uneducated, and untrained men and women to be his witnesses. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray um, for boldness. Lord, I, I, we, we, we thank you that you equipped the unqualified, that you sent your spirit to empower us, God. I thank you that you use broken men and women to be your witnesses, to build your church. God, I pray that all of us here would have an opportunity to share about what Jesus has done this week. I pray we would have the boldness to do so. All to your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.